Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is another half an hour of science on your radio unless you change the station, which I don't recommend doing because we have a half an hour of brilliant science coming up. My name is Chris, but first of all, we have Claire with a very good story, I am sure. We'll see. It's actually on orangutan, which is everyone's favourite primate. I know it's one of, well, I mean, at least in the top three of primate. They're pretty amazing, orangutan. And what is even more amazing is how the males develop what are called their flanges or mm. those fleshy bits of melon-shaped, oh, yeah. like skin <laughs> and weird stuff was. at the side of their faces. You I've know how I wondered about that. Yeah. yeah. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the orangutan flange hmm. or flange, depending on what part of the world you're from. I'm trying to remember the name of the Clint Eastwood movie. Every which way but loose. That's the one. Yeah. Anyway, thank you, Claire, for that fascinating Clint Eastwood update. Uh, Manisha, what have you got for us today? Uh, so today I was actually going to talk about some cool research that's recently come out, um, and it's about linking mass global heating to dwarfism in mammals. Excellent. Mm, intriguing. We're also lucky today to have with us science comedian Atlanta Colley, whose uh, comedy show Parasites Lost will be in the Melbourne International Comedy Festival this year from the 10th to the 15th of April. But she is here today to talk to us about brains, because (laughs) why not invite someone in except just to talk about something that they're not actually known for talking about? (laughs) So, look, that should be a really interesting discussion um, coming up after a couple of very well-researched stories. That's true. Uh, On with the show. Chris, you probably know that puberty is a very difficult time for people. <laughs> waiting. I'm waiting for it, yeah. I'm definitely hoping, hoping it's not that bad, yeah, anyway. Yeah, well, you know, your hormones are all over the place, you're growing in ways you've never experienced before, <laughs> both emotionally, physically. Uh, Financially. Flangely. Yeah. But, you know, at least everyone is going through the same thing at the same time. You've got a peer group that Mm -hmm. you can go to for support. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm not sure if you knew this, but male orangutans have a pretty different and bizarre way of going through their puberty or their sexual maturation. It takes a lot longer and it actually involves um, a couple of different stages. So first of all, let's bring to mind a picture of a male orangutan. Have you seen one recently? Have you seen one in a zoo? Have you seen one on Google images? Clint Eastwood movies? Um, How do they look different to females? If if you would have to, you know, take a stab. Are they bigger? They are bigger. They're like twice as big. This is true. They're a lot bigger. They're big in the face, aren't they? They're kind of like flabby. 
they're kind of flabby in the face. Exactly. They have these big fleshy melon-like protrusions on the sides of their heads that are called flanges. How did yeah. they get that name flange? I don't know. I think a flange is actually just a name for like a skirting of something. Like a like mm. I think you can use it in in terms of tools and stuff like that. Yeah, I like think so a, too, actually. Yeah, things yeah. have a flange. I like it's a plumbing term. I just Ooh. googled yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. I like them. All right. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> what flanges in general or orangutan flanges? Orangutan or flaming. Orangutan flange in particular. <laughs> yeah, and they also have um, throat sacs. So they also have these throat sacs, which means that they can project their voices wildly as well. Okay. So they do differ to the females in three quite significant ways. But I sort of tricked you because there are actual male orangutans who have reached sexual maturity that do not look like this visual picture we've just painted. That is, all mature male orangutans do not undergo this secondary sexual transformation. And weirdly enough, the ones that do get these fleshy face flanges um, and get the bigger throat sacs do so at an undefined time. So this is something that isn't specific to their genetics, but dependent on some unknown environmental factors. Does it right. have anything to do with who's like the alpha male or anything? Like yeah, so weirdly enough, so in captivity, orangutans can grow flanges at their maturity, so around mm-hmm. 10 years old. But in the wild, it can take up to 20 years after sexual maturity before some male orangutans grow their flanges. And having these flanges, yeah, it's a definite advantage if you're an orangutan. Um, As far as females are concerned, they prefer males with a flange over those without. So, yeah, Manisha, if you can join the dots, the flanged males are the dominant males in the orangutan world. But now if you put yourself back into the orangutan shoes, Chris... If, I, imagine, <laughs> I imagine they'd have like special like bits for the toes, the orangutan <laughs> yes. shoes. Yeah, yeah, because they have opposable they, opposable toes, don't they? Yeah, prehensile. Yeah, yep. prehensile toes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the orangutan reaches maturity at ten, and then it just has to wait for up to possibly twenty years in an arrested state of development before females will even look at them. And this isn't to say that there haven't been documented cases of flangeless males making babies. This has been documented, but whenever this happens, it's always when a ma- like a an unflanged male orangutan forces himself on a female. So no females oh. do it with an unflanged male unless they've been forced to. Look, I've got to admit, I am That's... not a um, I am not in any way, shape, or form a female orangutan. <laughs> But um, you do. Are you sure? People are wildly googling Chris Lassig over the internet right now. Um, the flanged males do yeah. look more mature. They look older. They look yeah, 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 said, and they're also flabby, healthier. Yeah, yeah, they, they also, are healthier. Are they? They, but is are, that they are healthier. Human perspective, like this thing, almost looks like it has facial hair. Like, beard well, it's and, not not beard so much, but just a kind of that really mature older face. You know, they got got a jowl. That's not the word I look for. Jowls. <laughs> Again, isn't that a bit of a You know, I mean, thing? whenever you yeah. ask a human female what she finds attractive, Jowls is at the top of the list. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely Maybe at the top the of equivalent of like the hipster beard, you know. It's yeah. kind of a side jowly thing going on. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Maybe it so, is. So and, you the know. unphalanged ones should go like outside of Hipsterville of any town yeah. or of their forest. Yeah. <laughs> so the question is now, what's going on biologically here that leaves these orangutans in arrested development? Yeah. What we do know is that as soon as males begin to develop these 
big cheek pads, these flanges, their um, testosterone levels spike, Mm -hmm. becomes a lot higher than those that are either not flanged or fully flanged. So in this flanging state, they have very high testosterone levels, Um, which means that testosterone obviously has a large part to play. But it's also been hypothesized that having a dominant flanged male within a sensing range um, of an unflanged male actually stops the unflanged male's development into a flanged male. Um, So a sensing environment could be, you know, an environment where it can hear a flanged male or it can smell a flanged male or, you know, it is somehow aware at some, you know, level that there is a male, a flanged male in that environment. Okay. Can you, the, the throat sacs you mentioned, are they like yeah. for voice Yes, stuff? for so, voice projection. So it's quite possible yeah. that flanged males sound, sound. You know, very yeah, loud. Yeah, can project their oh, sound yeah. further yeah, yeah. and louder. Yeah, and then it isn't really until the dominant flanged male dies or moves away or is possibly defeated um, or the unflanged male himself moves away that... Um, the unflanged male then develops his cheek pads and large oh. size. Um, so, I mean, this is just a hypothesis at the moment. But if this is the case, it means that a male orangutan um, can just be hanging out, minding its own business for 10 years, and then unbeknownst to him, a male somewhere dies, and suddenly you've, you know, got flanges overnight. He goes overnight. through changes. He goes through changes. Yeah. Yeah, and then becomes dominant, sort of like like a primate Game of Thrones or something. Wow. Yeah. It's really, really bizarre. So what yeah. triggers that hormonal development? Yeah. So that's what um, researchers are working at the moment, working on at the moment. They thought it was stress factors, mm. like um, flanged males being in the general vicinity of unflanged males caused unflanged males to be stressed, but that's recently been disproven. So there's sort of no one really knows what is going on. Um and also, weirdly enough, they've looked at Bornean orangutans and Sumatran orangutans and looked at the difference between um, arrested development times in those two, um, those two species and found that um, the Bornean orangutans spend less time in arrested development than do the, the Sumatran orangutans. Um, so, yeah, so for now, I guess it's just watch this space, or should I say, watch this face ah. flange. This story takes place actually a few million years ago, between 56 to 40 million years ago, during the Eocene Epoch, to be exact. Um, The Eocene is the second epoch of the Paleogene period. And none of these words really mean heaps to me, but I'm going to try to explain it the best I could. Um, During this epoch, there were a couple of really dramatic climactic events. And one of these events was this Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum, which resulted in this really, like, overwhelming warming of the Earth. And during this time, there was very little ice on the Earth, and the temperature at the equator was actually quite similar to the temperature at the poles. So you can imagine how different the Earth's climate really was at this time. There's actually been a a lot of well-established research to show that there was uh, rapid dwarfism in mammals uh, around the time of this rapid global heating. What do you mean by that? Were animals getting We're shrinking in size. 
Yeah, so basically, um, this heating event is thought to have put this selective pressure on mammals, and there was it was favoring for a smaller body size and muscular skeletal structure, and therefore the uh, mammals seem to be getting smaller over time. And during this uh, Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum, the globe heated to about five, uh, heated by about five to eight degrees Celsius, and some of the mammals actually shrank by nearly thirty percent. Wow. Yeah. So traditionally, these this phenomenon has been linked uh, to just this like massive global heating event, and it's quite dramatic. It's dramatic in the, the extent of the heating, and it's quite dramatic in the in the length of time that it it um, occurred for. But recent research per, uh, published by Abigail Dambrosia um, and colleagues showed that mammal dwarfism may not necessarily result from just these massive long term heating events. Also, during the Eocene, there were uh, shorter, uh, sh- there were shorter t- uh, extreme heat events called hypothermals, and these periods were are kind of analogous to our current anthropogenic climate change, the way that our globe is changing at the moment. So, it's less of a heating. It's not as dramatic as our at the moment. It's not as dramatic as like the poles heating to the same extent as the equator, um, and they were over shorter amounts of time. So these shorter heating events potentially w- won't be like our climate change, and they were always followed by these really rapid cooling events. But anyways, what um, what Abigail Ambrosia and her colleagues found were um, that when they vest- investigated places like the Bighorn Basin region in Wyoming in the United States, they were able to uncover some jaw and bone uh, teeth bones, and they were able to use the molar bones as a proxy of body size. And they found that there's actually a significant reduction in s- the size of the fragments during a fir- the first hypothermal in the Eocene. Although there was less heating during this first hypothermal, it, it only lasted about half the time of the Paleo-Eocene ther- um, thermal maximum. The authors were able to find that about 15% of the mammals, the mammals that occurred in this period dr- reduced in body size by about 15%. So it wasn't as much of a temperature rise as the other one, which caused them to drop by 30%. Yeah. So it's a smaller temperature rise, but it still is like 15% yeah, shorter, right? Yeah, so it's not as great of a temperature rise, but it also occurred over half the time. Oh, wow, so, okay. But there's still this rapid reduction in the body size. So there's this strong relationship with this, um, with extreme heating and reduction in body size, at least in mammals. Uh, the authors actually suggested that the change in body size could be an evolutionary response as a smaller body size would allow the animals to cool down faster. Because you've got more surface area to mass ratio kind yes. of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah exactly. And then also um, it may also have to do with nutrient availability because during these times the carbon dioxide and levels in the atmosphere were also heightened. So the plants weren't as nutritious, and so their food sources may not have been as nutritious. And so having a smaller um, body size allowed the mammals to cope with this. And this is sort of the point of concern that the the authors were raising, but also I think that our listeners can kind of draw the connection. If we're going through a similar sort of um, heating crises at the moment, we may be... Uh, we may come to experience these similar sorts of um, reductions in our own wildlife and in, in the fauna that we have present. So it might be essential to understand how mammals and other animals can cope with these extreme weather events and extreme heating events and to see how our world is actually going to change into the future.
Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you are listening to Lost in Science. You are listening to Lost in Science. And as I said in the introduction, we have with us today Alanda Colley, whose comedy show Parasites Lost will be at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival at Belleville, I think, from 10 to 15 of April. For those who are in Melbourne, get along. And she has just learnt about brains. And so we want to find out what she knows about them. Just. It's uh, week four of my nursing degree. So it's all very new to me. I got to to poke a sheep brain in the lab today. So yeah, that was. Sounds so nice for the sheep. No, well, it, uh, <laughs> the poke wasn't really present, so oh, to speak, okay. anymore. And no, I did poke back, the, just the brain. No no other part of the sheep was, was there. So, Alanda, can you tell us just very briefly, um, how does a brain work? Oh, look, can I? That's a good question. How long uh, have you got, Chris? <laughs> yeah, well. Whoa, straight off the bat. I thought I was going to be asking you the questions. Yes. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I have the control here for the moment. Can I, can I just say that um, I, I believe that Alanta isn't the only one who was studying the brain today. Is that is that right, Chris? Yeah, so I've been actually doing a lot of looking at brains myself, I've got to be honest here. I'll, right. I'll fess up. So, okay, so yeah. you're just... And why? Like, I just imagine you're in a morgue, like, poking people's brains. No, 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 I've been looking why? at, like, virtual brains. I like, see. Yeah, simulated brains on, on the computer. So, yeah. Um, so we got a bit of a brain anatomy off, if you want, Alanta. Yeah. So, yeah, okay, so let's just talk about brain. So what are okay. the, the main parts of the brain? Um, Frontal lobe. Correct. Well, that's but what is what is that part of? That is part of the cerebrum. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the cerebrum's the big part. That's where your personality lives, from what I understand. Your memories, your your values, mm. your your personality. So, you were you mentioned this when we were chatting before. There's a famous case of a guy. I don't know, sometime in the 20th century who had a had a stake sort of exploded through his frontal lobe. Do you... Phineas Gage, yeah. Phineas Gage. He was a railway worker or something. It was like a railroad oh, spike yeah. up through his head. Yeah. yeah, so that went straight through his frontal lobe. And what, what happened then? Well, um, his personality <laughs> changed completely, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, and this is, I think, where they got the idea for things like lobotomies and stuff like that as well. And that, yeah, so he had big damage to his frontal lobe. And I think he became more aggressive, mm. didn't yeah. he? And, mm. yeah, he was very different. That got the idea that his, um, that, yeah, the per- that's where the personality lives in the brain. But that's because different yeah. parts of the brain generally do different things. Yeah, which raises the question. So he would have been an exceptional case at the time that he had such a severe injury and yet and lived, lived to tell the tale, but yeah. uh, not without consequence or not without changes. So mm. do you have a feel for which bits of the brain are necessary and which bits are just garnishes to your to your personality? Well, it depends what you mean by necessary, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, well, actually, now what's interesting is that, yeah, they, I mean, there's a whole idea, that, that myth of we only use 10% of our brain. Mm. And that, I think, has come and exaggerated from people like your Phineas Gage who mm. have had damage to their brain and can survive without 
large portions of the brain, with large portions of the brain removed. Mm. But if you look at like a normal person's brain, they're using the whole thing pretty much. And generally you find there's these patterns of usage across the brain. But one of the most fascinating things is this idea of neuroplasticity, which you may yeah, have yeah. all heard of, which is where the brain can rewire. And so if you if you lose part of your brain, like through a traumatic injury or through something like a stroke, stroke or yeah. that sort of thing, mm. yeah, other parts of the brain can then take on those functions. Well, that raises another question. So I'm going to flip back at Alanka. <laughs> um, what do you know about the left and right side of the brain? <laughs> oh, God. Oh, that's easy. One's science, one's arts, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> It's like the horoscopes of brains. It's great. Uh, I know that they connect to the motor control of the opposite side of your body. That's essentially it, isn't it? That's a bit weird, isn't it? Yeah. I I was going to interrupt when my lecturer said that and ask, what is the evolutionary advantage of that? How did that evolve over time? Do you think they're just like putting the brains in and they just got them twisted around at some point? Or <laughs> who's they? Who's they? they? Yeah. Who's putting a brain in? Yeah, Intelligent well. design. Yeah. What does their brain look like? Exactly. <laughs> um, so yeah, but they. I wonder what the evolutionary reason for that is. That's something we have to look up. I think we'll have to yeah search up that one because yeah. that is a bit of a confusing thing. But yeah, that is pretty much the case, isn't it? So the the nerves. I think somewhere in the brainstem, there's this point where the brain, the um, the nerves cross over, and yeah, you yeah left side of your brain controls your right side of your body mm. and your right side of the brain controls your left side of the body and, and so forth. Mm. And this idea that there is like the different sides of the brain have different specialities, I think that's not as magical as it's often depicted in in the popular press, but there is something to I it. I think it's 100% accurate. No, I'm kidding. So we were discussing before the show the cases of, um, it's quite a popular case on the internet, that place. I'm not sure if you've been there before, mm, mm. but cases of people who seem to have large sections of their brain missing and people who are otherwise functioning perfectly normally, mm. but uh, through, is it CAT scans or other, other sort of investigations, there's been sort of revealed that there's large cavities in their, in their brain where things uh, tend to be normally. And mm. they are perfectly functioning Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes yeah. they have issues, um, but, yeah, often what it seems to be is that uh, – so your brain has these, these things called ventricles – in, inside it. So they're kind of spaces that fill with, what's it called? Cerebrospinal fluid. Yeah. yeah. Cerebral f- spinal fluid, I think. So it's this kind of fluid that flows throughout your brain instead of blood, it seems. It's the kind of a, don't quite understand how that works, but they're collecting these ventricles, these kind of gaps, empty areas in the middle of your brain. And sometimes you get, you know, hydrocephaly, which is, or mm. water on the brain, which you may have heard of, where you get too much yeah. of this fluid and it builds up and it squeezes everything out. Mm. And that mm. can lead to problems, as you can imagine. But people, some people can just seem to manage just fine with um, too much, yeah, fluid on their brain. Has there been any sort of evidence of, like, if particular ventricles are broken or missing or collapsed and there's a particular consequence, like... Function-wise or... With hydrocephaly is the result, which I think the the fluid builds up and then places pressure on parts of the brain. Um, My question to you two is um, about Mike the Nearly Headless Chicken. Um, uh, That great story from back in the 50s when a um, farmer went to cut a chicken's head off and um, he cut most of it off but didn't cut it all off and the chicken ran around, ran around like, you know, chickens with heads cut off do, but then he never died and he just kept going. on going and going and he the farmer made a fortune because he was taking him around to oh, all these Mike. all these <laughs> circuses and showing them this this chicken 
that have had most of his head cut off. But I it turns that, out he had his brain, brain stem, stem intact. That was still there, yeah. Yeah. So the brain stem is obviously oh, a quite important yeah, part of your brain. And chicken especially. Yeah. Well, all of your, your automatic functions like your heartbeat and those kind of things are controlled from the brain stem, definitely. And, you know, the chicken probably doesn't need as much of the higher kind of personality <laughs> functions as most humans do. Except your chickens, Lanter. I know that they are <laughs> yeah. very highly functioning. There's an important yeah. hierarchy going on there. Yeah. One, one might call it the pecking order, <laughs> if you will. It's not, not even a joke. It's just a fact. <laughs> All right. Well, look, we have learned a lot about uh, um, brains and, surprisingly, chickens today. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for coming in, Alanta, <laughs> and telling welcome. us some facts about brains. I remember Alanta's show is on the Comedy Festival 10th to 15th of April. Look it up on the comedyfestival.com.au website. And Alanta's going to be in the studio with us next week. To talk about her show. Yeah. Hooray. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you are listening to Lost in Science. Do you think that there's uh, life anywhere else in the universe? Well, think <laughs> think is a strong word. Um, if if you look at how many other worlds there are, uh, how many stars in the Milky Way galaxy, how likely it is that most of them now, likely now, most of them have planets, how many other galaxies there are, it seems the height of human arrogance to imagine that this planet is the only inhabited world. But at the same time, we don't know of life elsewhere yet. We're just at the very earliest stages of, uh, of exploration, and we've not found life anywhere else. Uh, we've sent uh, spacecraft, uh, as I said before, to, uh, to a wonderful, exquisite array of other worlds. We've learned an enormous amount from them. We find on some of them the, the chemicals necessary for the origin of life, you know, the stirrings, the intimations of life, but no sign of life. We've also used big radio telescopes to see if anybody is sending us a radio message, and both of those efforts have not yet succeeded, so we haven't found life elsewhere. Uh, I, would, I would think a universe in which we are the only living things is much more incredible than a universe just burgeoning, overflowing with life. But we can't be sure. It's an experimental question. It has to be addressed experimentally. And uh, that's one of the reasons that uh, I'm such an advocate for sending spacecraft to other worlds and for using large radio telescopes to, uh, to listen for signals. All right, that's it for uh, another episode of Lost in Science. We've heard some excellent brain facts. Uh, very excellent. Uh, yes, exactly. Very excellent yeah. brain yeah, I facts. love that you both have had one day of learning about the brain, brain and then trained. you go on radio and talk about it. It's excellent. Yeah, well, we, used, we used our brains. <laughs> we certainly did. And, yes. we've, and we also talked about flanges. Don't oh, forget about flanges. flanges. Word of the, word of the, the month. Flange. Word of the month. <laughs> totally. Word of the decade. I'm, I'm yeah. happy with throw, that. Flange. Throw that in Orangutan the flange. Throw that in yeah. the conversation. And of and course. A little bit of mammal dwarfism. Shrinking mammals Shrink. due to climate change. Also, yeah, another just another thing to worry about as the climate gets warmer. Yeah. Um, but horses that are the size of cats. Yeah, that's what's wrong with that. Yeah. Um, now, Lost in Science, it is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. It airs across Australia and the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Uh, you can get in touch with us. You can send us your opinions, your thoughts. Tell us what you think of our show. Yeah, tell us. Yeah, we Contact would love us. to hear. 
ask us a question or two. Lostinsci at gmail.com is our email address. Or we are on Facebook. You can find us as Lost in Science on 3CR. You'll know who we are. And you can find us on Twitter where we have a similar name. Uh, Lost in Science is at us. Lost in Science. Yeah, something like that. Or we can at find Lost us on the radio or on the podcast. And once again next week, you'll hear us. Um, you'll hear me, you'll hear Claire, you'll hear Manisha, and possibly Stu getting Lost, Lost in Science. science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.